Well, good morning. I will say, like a year ago-ish, when this first started, it was so nerve-wracking to start preaching in front of the camera rather than in person. Finally got used to that, learned that you can edit. Big fan. And then we went back to in person, and I was like, man, in person is way scarier. And then we flipped back again, and now today it's both. So this is absolutely terrifying for me. But uh, while there are terrifying parts of this job, there are also some amazing parts, and one of my favorite parts of this position is getting to brag about my leaders and my students. So I'm gonna do that for a minute. Um, over this past year, which has been crazy, God has been doing so much in 180. We, first of all, my team, they're incredible. They're like the best people. They have taken this, when I continuously change up what they're doing, I tell them like, oh yeah, we're in person. And then I'm like, just kidding. And I've thrown things at them constantly and they have adapted, they have taken it, they've run with it and they have done an amazing job. So please, if you see any 180 leaders, tell them that they're fantastic. And then for our students, there has been so much growth and I don't get it. Because it's nothing that we've done. It's literally just the Lord has been working in their lives and bringing so much growth and a desire for his word. We have a student who's amazing, who literally started her own small group on top of regular small groups and then asked some leaders to be part of it. Like just, there's just so much good stuff happening. I'm gonna embarrass her, it's Taylor, she's here today. So she's just like, these students, are world changers. They are absolutely incredible. I see there's a number of them here today. I love you guys so much, and I'm so excited to see what God is gonna do in your lives. And if you see any of the students, tell them they're fantastic, because it's true. But today, we are um, entering our third, third week? Third week of our series, One Kingdom Disciple. What this means is that as Christians, we can too easily live in a two-kingdom world. In other words, we have a genuine desire to follow Jesus, so that part of our life is dedicated to him. However, for various reasons, we can have this other kingdom, the other part of our life that we don't allow God into. We don't allow him to influence it, lead, or transform in that particular spot. Maybe it's some of our practices in our work life. Maybe it's how we treat our spouse or our parents. And maybe it's that secret area of our life that grows in controlling us because we consistently yield to that temptation. Maybe it's a heart that no one but God sees that covets, always wants more, and is never content. These are examples of the other kingdoms that need to be torn down so Jesus can truly be king in and over our lives. So the questions we're asking throughout this series are, what are you holding on to that causes you fear, stress, failure, sin, or distraction? And what are the things that Jesus is calling you, and how does God define what it means to be a disciple? There are these second kingdoms that, that the enemy wants to construct in our hearts and our lives. So we are going to look at today, what does it mean to repent and surrender to Jesus in order to become a one-kingdom disciple? And today, the part of that that we're talking about is sacrifice. So what I want to start off with talking about is what a disciple really is. Because between Bible college and articles and books and Instagram posts, it can be really overwhelming for what does it actually mean at its simplest form. The Great Commission calls us to make disciples. Jesus had his 12 disciples, but then we're told that we get to choose to be disciples, but that isn't just accepting Jesus. So what is it at its simplest form? Dictionary definition, 
It is a follower or student of a teacher, leader, or philosopher. That helps. None. That actually makes it no more clear. So what, like, what does a follower look like? What does that actually mean? And what is a student? Is there homework involved that makes us a disciple? Because I'm terrible, terrible with homework. To me, do today means do today. Like 100%, I have a homework assignment that's due tonight at 11.59, and it's due tonight, which means I will do it tonight. So if being a disciple is based on homework assignments, the mansion in heaven that the Bible talks about, mine's a shack, because I just am terrible at homework. Uh, but what a student and follower means in the definition can be clarified with looking at Peter, one of Jesus' 12 disciples. So the first directive that Jesus ever said to his disciple Peter was, follow me, in Matthew 4:19, And the last thing that Jesus said to Peter was also, follow me, John 21:22. Two identical statements in the English language, but they are significantly different. Jesus used two distinct phrases intentionally, and Peter understood the distinction between them. So to me, Peter sounds like one of those students that starts their homework assignments like weeks before they're due, which I always tell myself I'll be like, but then I remember I pay for Netflix and I want my money's worth. But with Jesus' first command, follow me, in Matthew 4.19, was to Peter and the other fishermen. He told them to follow him and he would teach them to fish for men. The Lord was formal and powerful in directing Peter and the others to become his students. What Christ was saying was, I want you to learn from me. The Lord's last directive to Peter seemed more like a request or a plea. Jesus had just finished asking Peter three times if he loved him in John 21. As Jesus is telling Peter this, Peter turns around and sees John, another disciple, following them. So Peter looks in John and then says to Jesus, well, what about him? Now, I don't know what Peter was going for here. I don't know if he was just trying to take the attention off himself. But the Bible says that John was the one whom Jesus loved. So I think he chose the wrong person to try to put the attention on. But Jesus gives this last word of instruction to Peter in verse 22. He answers, If I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Translated to today, Jesus basically responded with, It doesn't matter about anyone else. You are the one who must follow me. This last command sounds different, sounds like the first, but his tone and intent is much different. Here, with love, compassion, and purpose, Christ is saying, Peter, you stay close to me. Don't worry about anyone else. I'm asking you to stay close. These two commands can help clarify what a student and follower means when it comes to being a disciple of Christ. His followers were expected to learn from him. He wanted them to be students, to soak in everything he could possibly teach them. But he also wanted them to stay close to him by following in his example. Christ wanted his disciples to be motivated by their love for him, to follow in his pattern, and to model themselves after him. So if being a disciple is a student and a follower, that would include learning and following in sacrifice like Jesus did. Disciple and discipline sound very similar, and as Craig Groeschel wrote, discipline is choosing what we want most over what we want now. So being a disciple of Jesus means that it's not about finding the easier path in this life. It's actually a call that makes life more difficult. It's living countercultural, which is not an easy thing to do, and continues to become more difficult for believers in our culture. 
Ask a student, any one of them, about what it means to be a Christian in a high school where Christian principles are entirely countercultural. There is a cultural gospel that we hear lots of that's just about a happy life. It's about, um, you know, Jesus, you're going to heaven anyway, so it doesn't matter what you do or what you say, who cares? But that's not what the Bible actually calls us to. And if we are a student and a follower of Jesus, the cultural gospel doesn't work. The true gospel, however, calls us to a willingness to sacrifice everything for Jesus. It's a radical call, like the love of Jesus itself. But what does sacrifice mean for us? Matthew 16, 24 to 25 says, Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. When I think about sacrifice as a Christian, and I read this verse, my first thought is the Christians around the world who continually risk losing their life for their faith in Jesus. This verse in Matthew is clear. Deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow. If you lose your life for his sake, you'll actually find it. When I was a kid, I can remember having faith conversations with my parents, and they would always ask if I was willing to die for Jesus. They would ask that if someone told me that the choice was to renounce my faith in Jesus or die, what would it be that I would choose? I actually never really questioned my answer when I was a kid. I always just said, well, I would die for Jesus. It wasn't even a question because it was so far out of my realm of understanding what sacrifice was. I knew that I would never have to encounter that most likely, so the answer felt easy. But the reality is, for many Christ followers in other parts of this world, this isn't something far away or not happening. Take Afghanistan, for example. I found this information from a website called Voice of the Martyrs. I encourage you to check it out. But the Afghans who are followers of Jesus cannot worship openly. As there are no physical church buildings in the country, they must worship by gathering in homes or other small venues. Evangelism is forbidden, so Christians and spiritual seekers are highly secretive regarding their faith. Beatings, torture, and kidnapping are routine for Christians in Afghanistan, and their lives are continually at risk. So the truth is that we need to be willing to do the same for Jesus that these people are willing to do. We need to be willing to sacrifice anything for him because he sacrificed everything for us. I could spend a whole day talking about this part alone, but I want to talk about sacrifice in our everyday lives here. But this is something that we do need to ask ourselves as Christ followers. We are called to be disciples, to be students and followers. And that statement in itself means that there is no when convenient or when ideal. It's a call no matter what the situation. So I challenge you to take time today and honestly think about what you would do if, if the choice was death or Jesus. I want to look at our daily lives today, however. We need to be willing to sacrifice life itself, but what are we called to sacrifice every day that we struggle with? Looking again at Matthew 16, let's start with the deny himself part. Denying self is not the same as self-denial. We practice self-denial when, for a good purpose, we occasionally give up things or activities. But when we deny self is when we surrender ourselves to Christ and determine to obey his will. An example of this would be choosing to give up sugar for a month to focus on nutrition and healthy eating instead. Giving up the ice cream and choosing like celery or something instead. Gross. But that's self-denial. And uh, I actually think that if Jesus, you know, he didn't ask me to give up sugar, so 
I don't need to self-deny. I had ice cream last night. (laughs) But denying self means to live as an others-centered person. Jesus was the only person to do this perfectly, but we are to follow in his steps. Follow me, like the command. Our human nature wants to indulge ourselves, not deny ourselves. Look at our culture. Treat yourself is used for everything and anything that you've ever desired. It's put yourself first. Do what you want to do. But the countercultural gospel of Jesus tells us to deny ourselves. Later in these verses, it says, whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. We are to deny ourselves and also lose our life for Christ's sake. Death to self is the radical command of the Christian life. To take up your cross meant one thing. It meant you were going to a certain death and your only hope was in resurrection power. Again, this can mean a literal death, but there's also death to our earthly desires that don't align with the new self that Christ has created. A commentary I read put it like this. You don't lose a seed when you plant it, though it seems dead and buried. Instead, you set the seed free to be what it was always intended to be. Looking at Luke 14, 27, the verse says, And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. These were the words of Jesus to the large crowds that were traveling with him. And it's also very similar to what he said privately to all his disciples in Luke 9, 23, which was, Then he said to them all, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. As well as very similar to Matthew 16, as we just saw. What's interesting about this is that as Jesus spoke these words, everybody knew what he meant. In the Roman world, before a man died on a cross, he had to carry his cross, or at least the horizontal beam, to the place of the execution. So carrying a cross always led to death on a cross. No one carried a cross for fun. The crowds traveling with Jesus didn't need an explanation for the cross. They knew it was an instrument of torture, death, and humiliation. If someone took up his cross, he was never coming back. It was a one-way journey. Jesus chose this phrasing in the verse carefully. Instead of saying the cross or a cross, he says, pick up their cross. This reminds us there is a cross suited to each of us, and one person's experience of the cross may not look like another. We all have things in our lives that we are called to sacrifice, Things that God has told us to leave behind in exchange for the better things that he has in store for us. And the call of God is to have a willingness to sacrifice these things that keep us from following him fully. To sacrifice our second kingdoms. Jesus made it clear that only cross bearers can be his disciples. We sometimes may understate the demands of Jesus when we look at the gospel. We can get the impression that coming to Jesus is only to believe in some facts instead of yielding to a life focused on him and the sacrifice that that requires. I want to look at Philippians 3, 7 to 11 today as well. And this verse says, But what things were to gain to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Jesus Christ my Lord for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. 
Here, Paul is putting a personal relationship with Jesus at the very center of the Christian life. He joyfully accepts the loss of all other things for the greatness of this personal relationship. It wasn't so much that those things were worthless in themselves, but compared to the greatness of knowing Christ, they really were nothing. Paul said that he counted in Philippians 3.7, and in 3.8 he says, I also count. So what's significant about this is in the first counting was at his conversion, and the second, come some 30 years later, was in his Roman prison cell. After all he experienced, the hardships, the sickness, the jail time, he still counted it as worthy to give everything up for the sake of following Jesus. Uh, one of the commentaries writes, After 30 years or more of experience, Paul had an opportunity of revising his balance sheet and looking at his estimates and seeing whether or not his counting was correct. That was the issue of his latest search. What do matters stand at his last stock taking? He exclaims with a very special emphasis, Doubtless, I count all things but loss for the excellency of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Another thing that's interesting to note here is when Paul writes, I count them as rubbish. So this is actually really strong language for that time because Paul was literally considering them as excrement, not only as worthless, but as offensive. The ancient Greek word for rubbish had one of two uses. It was to describe excrement from the body or table scraps that were fit only to be served to the dogs. I'm pretty sure Paul would be confident with either meaning in this context. But the word rubbish shows how utterly insignificant and unavailing in the light of salvation Paul esteemed everything but the gospel of Jesus. The last verse I want to look at today is from Galatians 2, 19 to 20. For through the law I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. The law being talked about here is the law of God. The problem with the law is that we can at times think and live as if we aren't dead to the law of the world. We can think that we are still alive under the law and that keeping the law of God will just make us accepted by God. But Paul realized that on the cross, a great exchange occurred. He gave Jesus his old try to be right before God's self and was crucified and became his new self, Christ living in him. So Paul's life wasn't his own anymore. It belonged to Jesus. Paul didn't have his own life. He simply managed the new life that Jesus had given him. So I've given us a ton of information on what biblical sacrifice is, but I didn't really answer the question what does it mean for us? What does sacrifice really mean here? And what are the things that I'm called to sacrifice in my very Beaumont life? Uh, Luke 18, 18 to 30 is the story of the rich man. Once a religious leader asked Jesus this question, good teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus asked. Only God is truly good. But to answer your question, you must know the commandments. You must not commit adultery, you must not murder, you must not steal, you must not testify falsely, honor your father and mother. The man replied, I've obeyed all of these commands since I was young. When Jesus heard his answer, he said, there is still one thing you haven't done. Sell all of your possessions and give the money to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. 
But when the man heard this, he became very sad, for he was very rich. When Jesus saw this, he said, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. In fact, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this said, Then who in the world can be saved? He replied, What is impossible for people is possible with God. Peter said, We have left our homes to follow you. Yes, Jesus said, And I assure you that everyone who has given up house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will be repaid many times over in this life and will have eternal life in the world to come. So you might be sitting here with me thinking, well, I'm not rich, so I'm not a camel going through the eye of a needle, which is a little bit confusing. But what the scripture is actually telling us is, give up what keeps you from following Jesus, and God will give you so much more. Here's the truth about our lives here in Canada. For a good number of us, our sacrifice that God calls us to isn't really sacrifice as much as things that we should surrender. But sacrifice and surrender are really close for us, and at times they can feel the same. God calls us to be generous, to give our money and our time up. This can feel like a huge sacrifice, giving up time at home on a busy week to serve, missing the Oilers game, not really the third period ever, but the rest of it. But is it really sacrifice of our time or surrendering to something better? God is giving us the opportunity to be a part of his redemption plan. We just need to step in. There is so much in our lives that we think is sacrifice, but really is surrender. Uh, those friends that we spend time with that make us gossip more or drink too much. Are we sacrificing those relationships or surrendering to something better that God has for us? What about control? This is a big one. Sacrificing my control over my life seems scary, but am I really sacrificing control or surrendering it to someone who knows the end already. In this story, Jesus is shining a light on the man's heart. He's pointing out that what the man is holding in his hand is keeping him trapped. The command to sell everything on one hand exposes the man's failure to be good. We cannot inherit eternal life without first realizing our need for salvation. Jesus is helping him see where he falls short. He loved his money more than God. On the other hand, he's drawing the man to fully trust in God, to humbly rely on God alone rather than trusting in his money. Jesus taught us that we cannot serve God and money. You must choose. So which God will you choose and what will you sacrifice? I want to ask the worship team to come back up as we close today. Jesus discerns in the story of the rich man that this man has a divided loyalty. He's not really trusting in Jesus as good. He has two kingdoms. Jesus shows him that his own heart, he wants money on earth more than he wants eternal life. For salvation, it's not necessary to sell all you have, but the commitment below the command is essential, to trust in Jesus alone as your Savior. So what will you prefer on earth uh, versus what heaven can offer you? Will you keep your second kingdom? For this man, Jesus' demand is not a test of works, but a probing of his heart. Uh, what might Jesus ask of you today to sacrifice? What second kingdom is he saying that you need to let go of and surrender for something better? The worship team is going to play that song, Christ Be Magnified, that we sang earlier today. And as we sing the bridge, I ask that you take time to explore what God is asking you in your life to let go of. That bridge sings out of a heart willing to sacrifice and surrender. 
The words of the bridge are, I won't bow to idols. I'll stand strong and worship you. And if it puts me in the fire, I'll rejoice because you're there too. Another part of that says, because if the cross brings transformation, I'll be crucified with you. So I want to take time, and as we sing this, I pray that you can just really find in your heart, are you really willing to do that? And what is God asking you to sacrifice today? So worship team, I'm going to get you to sing that now. Sacrifice and a willingness to follow you fully. 
And Lord Jesus, I pray for each and every person here today and online today that is seeking your face, Lord Jesus. We are so grateful that you openly invite us to be a follower and a student with you, Lord Jesus. We thank you that we can learn from you and pull in close to you and you will lead us. So God, I pray today for the sacrifices that we may have to make, Lord Jesus. I pray that you make those easy because you show us just the incredibleness of following you fully, Lord Jesus. We thank you for your sacrifice, God, and we pray that we can follow in your footsteps. In your holy, holy name, amen.